Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In chapter 11 of his book, The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins is going to introduce what he thinks to be a new concept, that of the meme. And he's bringing in this notion to help develop an explanation for cultural transmission and what looks like a kind of evolution that he says we can observe historically that is not able to be adequately conceptualized and articulated by thinking things through in a Darwinist perspective that relies primarily on some older and, and well-attested notions. And so we're talking about cultural transmission and evolution as something that's distinctive to human beings. Other animals do engage in this to a certain extent, but it's observed and oftentimes promoted by human beings rather than being something really central to their existence, with a few exceptions. Now, Dawkins thinks that as a good Darwinist, he's going to have to go beyond the basis that a lot of other Darwinists have used to try to explain cultural evolution. Many like to appeal to genes or to group selection or biological advantage. And the idea here is that they say, listen, some things like believing in God or the conception of punishment after death or, you know, romantic love, pick whatever it is that you like. Those are things that are good for the group and therefore wind up being reproduced as such. You know, not just Charles Darwin. Darwin is more concerned about biological entities, but he does talk about bit about like the emotions and things like that. But Herbert Spencer would be a prime example of that group selection thing. Other people actually said, no, it's just genes, actually, you know, being cheerful, having a gene for that will actually make you fit in the group better. And you're more likely to get a mate and pass that on being morose and sulky. Maybe that has an evolutionary disadvantage. And Dawkins says, listen, these sort of things are putting the cart before the horse and they don't provide good explanations. We can't base this just on biological advantage of the organism as such. We have to have a different kind of explanation. So he says, let's go back to first principles. And he, and he does do that. And in the process, he says, there's analogies between genes, genetic reproduction, and memes, these cultural units of reproduction. What makes them special is replication. Imitation, he also says. That's why where he gets the word meme from, mimeme. And so replicating themselves. DNA molecules replicate themselves, and so do cultural units like this. What are the key features of this replication? He talks about longevity, fecundity. Fecundity means the productiveness, you could say, or the fertility, and then copying fidelity, which makes it be the same meme. If it's copying things, but they look nothing like what you're copying, you're not really copying, you're just making things instead. And so these three features, he thinks, are connected with each other. They play out differently. Genes perhaps have much better copying fidelity than do memes, or perhaps we have to rethink what copying fidelity looks like. They both have spaces of reproduction 
reproduction that take place over time. With genes, it's, you know, all the genetic material that goes into DNA and the chromosomes, right? And they're made up of physical elements. And you could say, aren't memes also, I mean, if they occupy space in our brains, neurons are physical things. Yes, but there's something that goes beyond the merely physical, whatever we want to call it. And the spaces of reproduction for memes are our brain space, but also public space where we convey meaning to each other. He uses the example of billboards, which are still around, interestingly. And some billboards have gone digital, right? They change their thing as you're driving past. He brings up newspapers. We might bring up blogs. We might also bring up video sites and podcast sites as places where memes are being propagated. Perhaps even new memes are being generated, right? And so the spaces of reproduction are very important for understanding how memes work. And, and, you know, to take one example, he talks about women's fashion and specifically high-heeled shoes. Now, is that being reproduced in Guitar Magazine? Probably not. Is it being reproduced in Cosmopolitan? Probably so. Right? Is it being reproduced in the displays that get sent out to you in the form of, you know, newspapers that almost everybody throws away that wind up in your mailbox? Perhaps so, right? These are all important aspects. And then we get to a much more interesting and worthy of further discussion issue, which is complexes. How should we understand what counts as a gene or understands as a meme? And he says that I appeal to the same verbal trick I used in chapter three. I divided the gene complex into large and small genetic units and units within units. The gene, in quotes, was defined not in a rigid all or one none way, but as a unit of convenience, a length of chromosome with just sufficient copying fidelity to serve as a viable unit of natural selection. And then he says, if a single phrase of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is sufficiently distinctive and memorable to be abstracted from the context of the whole symphony and used as a call sign of a maddeningly intrusive European broadcasting system, then to that extent, it deserves to be called one meme. It has incidentally materially diminish my capacity to enjoy the original symphony. So he's willing to say that memes can be broken down, but they can also be built up into entire complexes. And this is going to turn out to be something quite important that comes up in relation to another discussion that he has of the connection between these two. So he says, throughout this book, I've emphasized we must not think of genes as conscious, purposeful agents. Blind natural selection makes them behave as if they were purposeful. And it's been convenient to refer to genes in the language of purpose. For example, to call them selfish, which is a, you know, anthropological logical term. So when he says genes, when we say genes are trying to increase their numbers in future gene pools, we don't actually mean that they're like thinking, how can I increase my numbers? They're behaving in such a way as to have the effect of increasing their numbers in future gene pools. And he sa says, just as we found it convenient to think of genes as active agents working purposefully for their own survival, maybe we should think of memes in the same way. We don't have to get mystical. Purpose is only a metaphor, but it's a fruitful metaphor. So if we're going to say that, then we can call memes ruthless or selfish, and we can say that they come into 
competition with each other. And what we're saying there is just that they happen to crowd each other out, that they happen to replace each other, collide with each other, to occupy the same spaces to try to, well, actually the try is already a purposeful word, but they attempt to, uh, attempt is a synonym, see how hard it is to get away from this, this sort of lingo. They do whatever they're going to do to maximize their use of resources, which ends up minimizing others or vice versa. And so they do come into competition. And this is where we can talk about the spaces of replication, right? If Beethoven's symphony, Ninth Symphony, is stuck in my head on continual loop, then perhaps I can't have another classical symphony or a pop song or bits of a lecture that I heard also in my head on continual loop right? So memes can push each other out, can take over space. And this is, you know, why he's saying that there's cultural evolution. We don't use some of the same language for slang as we would have back in the day. You know, say you watch a movie from the 1930s, they talk in ways that we say are corny. Actually, we don't even say the word corny anymore. That's an older meme, isn't it? Now we say cringeworthy or something like that. So they can come into competition with each other. He also talks about how memes and genes themselves as classes of things might come into opposition with each other. And he brings up celibacy, specifically celibacy on the part of priests, a gene that would promote celibacy because celibacy has to do with not reproducing physically, not having sex, right, would seem to be self-defeating. A meme, however, for celibacy on the part of at least some people, for example, certain religious leaders or religious professionals, you might think about monks and nuns. He has in mind priests here, but let's think about monks and nuns because they've had a much bigger influence throughout the history in terms of celibacy. Oftentimes priests could actually be married and in many religions they still can and are even expected to be. Monks and nuns in you know Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, Christianity are expected to be celibate but they're often tasked with important functions within the religious community that not having, at least in theory, physical, sexual, romantic relationships would distract them from. And as meme producers and as meme transmitters, perhaps they have a greater efficacy by not getting it on with anybody, right? So that's a great example. And Dawkins here comes into an interesting conjecture. Maybe what he's calling co-adapted meme complexes, where you've got a whole bunch of different things reinforcing each other. Maybe those things evolve like gene complexes do. What are examples of gene complexes? Developing a certain kind of teeth that go along with a certain kind of alimentary canal and perhaps even, you know, could say co-adaptation with certain bacteria within your gut and certain other things like these handy dandy, as Aristotle called it, the hands, the tool of tools, right? Well, and big brains that can think out these things. Maybe those all go together, right? Maybe other gene complexes work really well in other animals. Maybe it's the same thing for co-adapted meme complexes. So when we're thinking about music again, for example, or fashion or architecture, there would be a bunch of traits that all accompany each other. And over time, maybe some of them fall out and get replaced but they tend to cohere as a whole, in which case we can think of them as a single meme or we can think of them as a complex. Now, Dawkins finishes this discussion by raising a very interesting idea. He says, 
who is actually the subject here? Who is the adaptation and reproduction working for? Is it working for the bearer of the traits, the human being, the person walking down the street, whistling, you know, a kiss song or Van Halen song in their head or pick whatever pop song of the present you're into, right? If you're not into classic heavy metal. No. And here he, he suggests something very interesting. Maybe cultural traits memes evolved simply to be advantageous to themselves, to replicate themselves using us and our actions, our desires, our decisions, our communication as a medium. Now, this is quite speculative and goes kind of far beyond, and it would, it would require us also to buy into this kind of purpose language, but perhaps that is part of the effect of what Dawkins here is calling memes. Maybe this is another way that they're similar to, but also in some respect, a jump beyond the slow evolving genes. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.